Welcome to The Changing World of Work, a podcast series that gives you access to some of the best business minds from around the world. My name is Claire Luby from Irish Times Training. In collaboration with Kevin Empey, founder of Work Matters, we are bringing you conversations with international guests whose cutting-edge insights will disrupt your thinking and make you reflect on today's ever-evolving world of work. Welcome to this episode of the Changing World of Work podcast, brought to you by Irish Times Training. I am your host, Kevin Empey. Linda Grattan is one of the foremost global thought leaders on the future of work. As Professor of Management Practice at the London Business School, Linda's leadership and insight into the interaction of people and the world of work has earned her numerous international accolades over the years. She is the author of 11 books, including Redesigning Work and the award-winning 100-Year Life, which has sold over a million copies worldwide. And she's a regular contributor to the likes of the Harvard Business Review, The Times and MIT Sloan Management Review, amongst many others. Linda is also the founder and CEO of HSM Advisory, which supports companies globally to future-proof their business strategies. And she serves as a fellow of the World Economic Forum, co-chairing the Council on Work, Wages and Job Creation. But the heart of Linda's work is a passion for helping individuals and society at large navigate the changing world of work, as well as naming her as one of the top business thinkers in the world for seven years running. Thinkers 50 has described her as a rock star teacher, a quality endorsed by the London Business School where she has been recognised as Teacher of the Year and where she also directs Future of Work electives and the highly acclaimed programme on human resource strategy in transforming companies. Linda Grattan, welcome. So Linda, maybe we could start with your own background and, you know, what was it that got you originally interested in the field of work and organisations and what you do today? How, how did it all begin? Well, thank you, Kevin. That's a great question to start. And actually, as it happens, it's been a question that's been on my mind. I'll be 70 next year. And as part of that process, I've been reviewing my own life and asking myself, what have I learned? What have I learned that I could tell others about work and what great work looks like? And so I've gone back to all my memories and I've asked myself the same question. Where did it start? And believe it or not, it started in a chocolate factory at a school, the last couple of years at school. The best place to make money was the Terry's Chocolate Factory in York. It was the highest paid job that I could get because I love traveling, still do. And working on that assembly line with many other women who are very adept at packing chocolates, I was very poor at packing chocolates, really gave me my first taste of what work was. Now, obviously, I resolved to try and never work on an assembly line again because I was really poor at it. But actually, it also gave me a sense of how many people work. And as I've reflected on that experience over the years, of course, it's helped me understand about automation and the impact of technology on work. You know, this was the first time, actually, I'd encountered um, some machine at work. This was an assembly line machine. And in the book that I'm writing at the moment, I've reflected on the lives of those women, what happened to them. And of course, what happened to them, Kevin, as you probably know, is that they followed the path of anyone who's faced with automation, which we're doing at the moment with generative AI, which is either they upskilled into higher paid jobs, they reskilled into other jobs, mostly call center jobs, or they de-skilled and became gig workers. So in many ways, it was 
an astonishing introduction to the world of work. I then, as you perhaps know, went to British Airways once I'd finished my PhD on Maslow's hierarchy of needs as an occupational psychologist and then on to a big consulting practice. And then finally went to London Business School and I've been there ever since. So Mm. I've been fascinated about work really from the very beginning. And as a psychologist, I'm fascinated in what it means for humans to work. Yeah, that intersection between people and and the world of work. And the world of work can be sometimes driven by other forces in terms of business and technology, as you say. But at the heart of it, though, is the human side too. And, you know, and sometimes those are assumed as the one thing, but they're, they're two separate sort of systems operating quite separately. Really, really interesting. So, so psychology was probably the formally was that sort of initial training, I guess, that got you then into the field. And maybe to zoom forward to the world we're in today, you know, as we stand now, Linda, you know, just really keen to think about where do you think we are in that overall evolution of work uh, since you began in those days and, and even, even before. But, but certainly since then, I've, I've stolen your analogy, Linda, that you, you've used several times, I think, comparing the future of work story to a Netflix production, you know, that one where you, <laughs> you, 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 you say we're probably somewhere in season two, episode three, you know, that this is not a new phase that we're in. But at the same time, I think, you know, maybe it was COVID that brought everything to the sort of mainstream consciousness. But here we are three years on from the pandemic work was already rapidly changing pre-2020. We have, as you say, AI now accelerating further disruption to how and where work gets done. The four-day week discussion is gaining momentum. Living wage, of course, how you coined the 100-year life is a very real thing for people. So, so much going on. And just love to get a sense of, you know, do you think we're at a major inflection point or is this part of an ongoing continuum? So, where are we, do you think? And, and what is different, you know, compared to perhaps previous transitions in the evolution of work? It's different about where we are today. Yeah. Well, I started the Future of Work Consortium. It was called something different, actually, at the very beginning, 30 years ago. So for 30 years, we've had a group of, of executives from companies. Some of the companies have stopped that were in the, the beginning are still there, actually. Can you imagine? Talking about that very question. And I think I'm sort of privileged in a way to be running an elective at London Business School with my MBA students on the future of work. In fact, I'm running it next week. So every year I have to really ask myself that question because I've got 80 students from all over the world sitting on Monday morning. And the question they're going to ask me is, what's the future of work? I've always looked at it from a systems perspective. I mean, that's really something that came out of my early training, this sort of systems approach. And so I follow and have followed for 30 years three major trends. I follow technology trends, I follow demographic trends, and I follow societal trends. And each of those play out in a sort of long wave way. And then, of course, you get these astonishing moments. So if we just look at the long wave first, and then we can look at the astonishing moments. In terms of the long wave, technology that I saw back in the Terry's Chocolate Factory, has obviously advanced astonishingly since then. And what we know, and I mentioned it a moment ago, is that people are impacted by technology on a constant basis, really. And so the human and the technology work together, and the human either skills to use that technology better 
or moves into an entirely different job because sometimes the technology takes that job. In the case of the assembly workers in Terry's factory, there isn't an assembly line now that packs chocolates that have got people on it. It's, of course, entirely automated. Or they move down into gig jobs. And that's really important to actually realise that up to a third of people, the impact of technology is that they go to a lower paid job, not a higher paid job. And that's playing out now. We can speak about generative AI in a moment. But certainly, that's just for me the latest part of the story of technology. The second theme I, I look at is demography. And as you mentioned, I did a deep dive into that a couple of years ago with my colleague Andrew Scott and wrote the book A Hundred Year Life and then followed it up with another book, The New Long Life. And basically what we were saying is, you know, we're living longer and we're living longer more healthily. And so that impacts the way we think about our lives. You know, the, the three-stage life of full-time education, full-time work, full-time retirement just doesn't work. If you think you're going to retire at 50 or 55 or even 60 and then you live to 90, how are you going to pay for that? So, you know, what we came up with, and Andrew is an economist, so he sort of run the numbers, is that either, you know, you save more, which most people don't, or you you retire on a very, very low income which people don't want to do, or you work longer. How, how long do you work? Well, you work into your 70s. And part of the reason I'm still working full time is that I've told everybody else they've got to work longer, so I better do it myself and see how it feels. But of course, you know, that's not just a straightforward question, the question of demography, because some people are living longer, but some people aren't. So there's a huge problem there about inequality. The fact that even where I'm sitting now at Primrose Hill in my study in my house, but even four miles away in one of the estates in Camden, people are living 12 years less than I will, at least 12 years. So there's a huge issue there on inequality. And then the third area that I look at is societal trends. And obviously, one of the questions I've been looking at is what's happening with families, what's happening with the world of work. And of course, as more women work, when I look back to my own life, my mother, I was born in, in the 50s. My mother didn't work. She was a full-time carer. That was entirely normal for that age, uh, for that era. But most women now work. And as they work, it changes the dynamics of families. It means families often have two incomes. So they're time poor, but they've got a little bit more money to decide what to do with regard to flexibility. So I look at all of these trends together. And I think, Kevin, you know, uh, that that's very important because otherwise you do tend to just focus on one thing. So at the moment, I've been running a series of research webinars. I'm running one next week with MIT on uh, what's happening with generative AI. And that's what everybody's talking about and, and sort of rightly so. But actually, you do have to put that into the context of so many of the other long-term trends. So what I try to do in my writing and my teaching and my consulting is to acknowledge that there are all of these shifts taking place. And then sometimes something else happens. So the thing that happened three years ago, obviously, was the pandemic. I moved into a, a mode, which I'm currently in again, which is I then move into diary mode, where I keep a diary every single day. I look at what it's telling me. I talk to lots of people. And that meant that when the pandemic hit, I very quickly understood what was happening around the world with regard to hybrid work. I wrote the book very quickly 
called Redesigning Work. I'm not going to write a book about generative AI, by the way, but I am in that process at the moment. I am currently, I have my diary in front of me. I'm taking diary notes about generative AI because just as, as you said, the uh, pandemic was, you know, series three, episode one, we're in, we're in that in generative AI at the moment. It actually changes every single day. And so if you want to keep up with it, you need to be on it, on sort of on a daily basis. It was interesting. A friend of mine interviewed one of the most senior people at Microsoft yesterday, uh, and he spoke to our MBA students. And, and the question they asked him is, well, how do they how do they keep on learning? And he said, you should be working with generative AI every single day. You actually should be using it every day. So there's an enormous learning curve, just as the pandemic set off a whole learning curve about how do we work, what are our assumptions about work, generative AI is doing exactly the same. And my guess is that within the next three years, there'll be something else, which is rather difficult to predict. You know, we didn't really predict the pandemic, at least I didn't. And we knew that technology was changing, but I don't think, I certainly hadn't realised until I opened ChatGPT, just how far this thing had got to. So there's always things that are slightly difficult to predict that are coming up in two or three years. And so, as you say in your your marvellous book, you know, you've really got to be able to be agile and to be resourceful and to be thoughtful. Yeah, because as you say, even within the technology piece, there's so much happening there. I love I love the way you take this long wave view because we know the direction of travel, don't we? You know, some people say it's hard to predict the future of work, but actually when you take a long term, a longer term view, it isn't so hard because we know that there's shifts as you've written, there's shifts that are sort of we are going to have more digital. The demographics are going to change and they're sort of quite some of them quite predictable. Um, some of the societal shifts indeed, there's some long wave. And then the, even within the technology piece, it's not just one or two technologies. It's the fact that multiple technologies are converging to a form that we can't necessarily see. I suppose the iPhone is traditionally used as an example of that. Suddenly materials technology, internet technology, and other technologies sort of came together in one sort of time. And it feels like that case is 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 with us again. And you're right about, you know, I think this it's it's almost not the technology we're trying to grapple with. It's the it is the convergence and the complexity and the uncertainty of things is really the underlying trend. And maybe we could stick with because since you began with that story on the on the chocolate factory line, if we just take a little bit of the human and work implications of the generative AI, just to get your take on that before we move on. I mean, you know, you mentioned about, for instance, the the people working the assembly line and you know there's no assembly line anymore but they reacted they moved on what do you think what's your summary view of the generative ai challenge and you know both i suppose the positive productivity point of view but also maybe what we need to watch out for in terms of the darker side of that in, ter- in terms of potential impact on jobs and and access to lower entry level work, for instance, which we might think on one hand is great, fantastic, we'll go rid of the drudgery, but actually one per- one person's drudgery is another person's start <laughs> in, yeah. in, in working life like your own. So just interested on your take on the generative AI challenge and opportunity that's there. Yeah, well, you know, it's one of the reasons it's difficult to write about generative AI, and I only write at the moment about it for newspaper columns. I have a column in the Times, as you know, and also a column in MIT Sloan. And I do that because I couldn't write a book about generative AI because it won't be out for at least a year, and I'll be sounding completely completely ridiculous. So 
I only write about it in something where, you know, I submitted a column for the Times yesterday and it'll be in the Times tomorrow. So it's just changing so quickly. What do we know? Well, when I teach generative AI, I always start, and it's a shame that we're, we can't look at each, but, you know, maybe I should post this on my LinkedIn. I always start with a, a very simple thing that David Uta wrote about technology. And basically what he said was, look, technology is, you know, either it's sort of physical or it's cognitive, and either it replaces jobs that are routine or non-routine. And basically all the technology we've had up to now have been both physical and cognitive, but they've only really replaced mm. routine jobs. And the reason that generative AI, there was always a little piece in that diagram, which was about non-routine cognitive work, the sort of work that you and I do, and nothing had really touched that until generative AI. And when I opened it, and I've written quite a lot about it actually in my columns, I just, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I really couldn't believe it. It was astonishing. And of course, the thing about generative AI, Kevin, which makes it so different from anything else, is that whenever a company has tried to do IT, what they do is they have a sort of top down, as you know, you know, they get the IT department, they they make a 12 million contract with, you know, some technology company, they try and roll it out. It's a mess, all of that. Chat GPT, everybody's got it on their phone. It hardly costs anything. And it's and it's sort of the democratization, as it were, if you will, of that sort of technology. So, you know, everybody's using it. It really doesn't matter. And now companies are saying don't use it. But but that's one the, the first point is that the speed of adoption has been absolutely astonishing. You know, so many people in the world within a week had downloaded it and had started working with it. So you get this astonishing experimentation happening. That's the first thing. The second thing is, and this came from the McKinsey report that came out at the time of the chat GPT, when you ask technologists, when is this going to make a difference to work? We're not talking about decades time, we're talking about years. So the speed is the second thing I wanted to really say that, that's astonishing. It's very, very fast. And when I talk to people in the generative AI world, they say, Linda, you've no idea what's coming next. It's, it's even bigger. The third area, which I'm particularly interested in and I'm writing about at the moment, but haven't really come to any conclusion yet, is the whole issue about creativity. So if you look at the McKinsey report, which where they asked a bunch of technologists, when do you think chat, GPT or generative AI can do tasks? There's a whole bunch of tasks and one of them is creative tasks. And they say probably within a year or two, you go, hang on. Yeah, we thought that creativity was only humans could do that. So that's the piece I'm working on now, which is to say, what is it to be a human? Of course, the other thing that's happened, and this comes from the BCG uh, report, which looked at their, they asked a you know a couple of hundred consultants to use generative AI in their work, and they looked at what impact it had. And, and there's two things that really stand out there. The first is it increased productivity, and it did that primarily because people worked faster. Not necessarily better, but faster. The second point, which is one I'm still trying to work through, is that the group it most impacted on was medium performers. So it made medium performers look like high performers. Mm. Their output. So these are all, you know, I that think of course that is where the big you know when you take the sort of curve of you know 10, 80, 10 in terms of performance and that is always the holy grail, isn't it? If we can get the medium 
level yeah. of performance up even one standard deviation. I mean, the the impact of that is so much greater than getting a little bit more out of the top performers, of which there's fewer. So that's a very interesting observation on the productivity side. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, that's sort of where we are with generative AI. I am running, one of the things I do is I run what I call research webinars, where I say, look, I'm going to run a webinar, come along, but I'm going to ask you lots of questions. I did that last year on generative AI. I'm repeating it on February the 1st for MIT. So when you listen to this, do go back and, and take a look at that webinar. I haven't run it yet, but by the time you listen to me today, I will have run it. And I'm asking lots of questions about where right. are you with it? How are you using it on human capital? But what's already interesting is that some companies, particularly creative industries, actually have a chief head of generative AI. They've actually created that job mm. now. Mm. And I'm talking a little bit next week about what those jobs look like. But it's 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 absolutely enormous. And, you know, I think for me that this week's takeaway was the point from the Microsoft executive, which is you should be using it every day. And maybe maybe that brings us into a question then, I suppose, not just with the generative AI side, but all these other converging points that you make around work. And of course, even the people would say the hybrid chapter or episode isn't quite done yet. There's still kind of work, people still working their way through that. And uh, other shifts that I mentioned earlier on. And so if you kind of stand back from that, if you're kind of an organizational leader, a HR leader, and you're acknowledging that there's these longer term pieces, but there's this also this kind of very dramatic shorter term um, events that we're going through, probably at a pace that's unprecedented, I think you'd agree, you know, over the last 20 years, 20, 30 years than the previous probably 100. As a leader, it's sort of hard to know where to start, isn't it? Your head can spin on this. And I, and I just wonder what you think, you know, the top two or three bits of advice would be as a leader to help them navigate the both themselves, but their organization through that in a calm way. <laughs> uh, what do they need to be thinking about? You know, what, what do you think they should be doing maybe differently to navigate themselves and their organizations in this period of work compared to maybe what, how they've maybe led <laughs> change before? Yeah. Well, just a word on hybrid. As you say, we're sort of now into series three, episode <laughs> five, what are we seeing there? Just masses of variety. And, and I, I, that for me was very predictable, mm. that actually what ha would happen is companies would start developing their own deals. And the, the, the deal goes from, I want you in the office all the time, to you never have to come into the office, and everything in between that. I've been asked quite a few times, what's the right deal? And I always give the same answer. It won't surprise you, Kevin, which is, it depends on who you are. But I think, so the first thing I would say about what should managers do right now is to, to ask themselves, what's the deal I want? Make that very clear to employees mm -hmm. and to sort of stick to it, really. Um, and that's own it. And yeah, own it as own well, it. the consequences. And, yeah. yeah, and the consequences. Because, you know, for example, if you say, I want everybody back in the office, as quite a lot of companies, are architectural practices, for example, are saying, you know, the sort of work we do, we need to be together. So if you want to be here, then come together. Uh, I talked to a great group of CHROs yesterday. I sort of do a every three or four months, I get a, a group of CHROs together and we just chat for a couple of hours, you know, what's on your mind. And they were saying, you know, exactly the same, that some of them are in, are in businesses where, in the law firms, for example, it's really important that people learn through observation Young people learn through the observation, observing older people, more senior people. So they don't want all their senior people working from their gorgeous houses in the country. They want them in the office. So 
I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but you just need to be explicit and realize that you lose some people because of that. And other companies are entirely virtual. So, you know, there is this astonishing variety. And the most important thing a manager needs to ask themselves is what's the best deal that helps my company be productive? And I think for me, when I wrote Redesigning Work, the biggest takeaway was you need to build work to increase the productivity of individuals. Because if executives think that productivity is going down or if they see productivity going down, then they're going to take all this stuff out. And you're beginning to see that, aren't you? A big sort of pushback on hybrid working and so on. So I think that's the first thing that a manager needs to do. The second thing, which is something that Diana Gerson and I uh, wrote in a really wonderful HBR, Harvard Business Review article we wrote called Managers Can't Do It All. And if you haven't, mm. uh, dear mm-hmm. listener, had a look at that, please do. It's won lots of awards. It was a very important piece. Diane Gerson, for those of you who don't know Diane, was the CHRO at IBM. So it's a massive global job. And she and I have written two Harvard Business Review articles. We've written one about managers. And we've just finished one about freelancers. This is the first time I've mentioned that. You'll see it coming out in May about how you're getting a lot more skilled freelancers in the workplace. But coming back to managers, one of the things we said is managers can't do it all. We know from the pandemic that they were the golden thread that really made a difference to people's lived experience. And yet they're massively pressured. So what we said in, in our article was, look, you know, you've got to take some of that pressure off them through automation by just stopping doing stuff like having so many meetings. You need to upskill them, particularly in things like coaching and so on. And maybe you need to change their job altogether. And we gave the example of the Australian company uh, Telstra, which had entirely changed managers' jobs. It said either you're managing people or you're managing work, but you're not doing both. So, you know, that was a whole set of ideas about how you reduce the terrible stress that managers are on. Having said that, yesterday with the CHROs, the question was, what's happening? What are you seeing? Guess what everyone was talking about, apart from generative AI? Managers. So we still haven't solved that problem. And so I I would say, you know, my, my first point would be to really try and get the deal right, a, a deal that helps you be productive, and not to get too carried away with the sort of rhetoric of this and that. You try yourself to decide what's the best deal for our company and the people we want. Secondly, take another look at managers. Is there anything you can do to make their life better? And thirdly, and Kevin, this isn't going to surprise you because it's something that you write about a lot. It's about skills, really, you know, that reskilling, upskilling, lifelong learning has got to be top of the agenda right now because the only way that we can cope with this astonishing changes that we're seeing is by always learning and being curious about learning and want to learn and have things to learn. And and, and it fascinatingly, Kevin, when I looked at my own memories about when I learned the most, and I say this as a professor, very little of it was in sort of classroom learning. Almost all of it was by doing interesting jobs. And so I think we need to acknowledge that most people learn through the work they do and the colleagues they've got, the mentorships they get, the coaching they get. And we have to really focus on that. 
No, there's so much in that, Linda. And I think one of the things at the core of your, and with the timing of redesigning work was so good because, and I've quoted it often, is this maybe underlying question of rethinking work and being open to rethinking work. And one thing I think the pandemic perhaps gave us all in a very democratic way was everybody went through a very lived experience of challenging assumptions about how and where work got done. And I always felt as we were going through that episode that actually this was very important lived experience because it was going to maybe give us some muscle memory about how we might approach further you know, disruption that was going to inevitably come, which it is continuing to come now, as you mentioned, AI, et cetera. So hopefully we are becoming more open to challenging how and where work gets done. And I think central to that too is this role of the manager, which has been unsustainable, really, and increasingly unsustainable probably over the last 10, 20 years, this sort of expectations that that we have on managers. And, and perhaps now we're reaching a, a stage where that road that road of a manager will, will, will part into those two broad areas, as you say, managing the work on the one hand and managing the people on the other. I remember one organization saying they've changed their their promotional uh, policy to ensure that if a person takes on a managerial role, that they genuinely care (laughs) and that they care about the people that they're about to lead. And that's become a fundamental kind of quality, not an assumed just rite of passage, if you like, because they've hit a certain stage of of their discipline. So some really, really profound kind of maybe changes of perspective around looking at the work and being open to, to further change. What about if we're grappling with this at organizational level and even individual level? Again, the pandemic gave us all that. Like it was no, and now you you mentioned the, 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 the sort of bottom-up effect of generative AI. So even individuals are leading a discussion in their own minds about how to get their work done rather than waiting for top-down change. So if we've got that general disruption going on, typically, I suppose, you know, companies and employees are are the early adopters of new norms around work and and how it's organized and the implications of it. And I, I just wonder, and you mentioned it's one of your three themes, are we set up for this change, you know, from a societal perspective? You know, are there changes we need to see there in terms of, I don't know, education, models, training, skills, other policy areas? Because it feels like that side of society sort of lags behind what's happening at the company and individual level. Yeah, Well, we really, I think that's such an important question, Kevin. And when Andrew Scott and I wrote The 100 Year Life, I mean, part of the reason that was such a successful book, and to put it into context, it sold more than a million copies. And that's a lot. I go to I go to Arsenal a lot. And and there's 80,000 people in the stand. And I think, wow, this is is only 80,000. And that sold a million. That's a lot of people around the world, actually more than uh, mostly in China and Japan, in fact, uh, the Chinese and Jap- so so look, it was an important book, and 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 we wrote a, a sequel to that, the the new long life, and where we look specifically about what should what should government do, what should education do, and that's playing out. You know, obviously, you know, it's very difficult for governments to act, particularly when they're not stable. But the things that really strike me about that about government policy is the multi stage life, really, which is to say. If you're going to work until you're in your 70s, you cannot possibly work the same way that you do. You've got to be able to take breaks, have a much more mobile labor market. Now, actually, we are building a much more mobile labor market. The piece that Dan Gerst and I have written about freelancers shows 
that 38% of people in the US are either gig contractors or freelancers. And you might say, well, hang on, they're all gig workers. They're all Uber drivers. They're not. 50, you know, of that, 38, half of them are skilled freelancers. So the market's already changing. The actual labor market's already changing. So, you know, those forces are already happening. But what could government do? Well, I think government can really help uh, tackle ageism. It was interesting. One of the CHROs yesterday said, and we've decided in terms of discrimination, we're going to look at ageism. And I just went, hallelujah. That's the first time I've heard that. Um, most companies, it's very difficult to get a job over the age when you're old. And I don't know what you think old means, Kevin, but <laughs> most companies, it means 50. I know. I know. I'm a bit scared about, uh, yeah, and your kids talk about old people in their 30s yeah, and 40s. They're talking about 50 go, year hey, olds. Hang on a second here. Yeah. yeah, I think they're talking about 80 year olds. No, 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 they're talking about 50 year olds. So, <laughs> so organizations have got to be encouraged to employ people longer. So that's a priority. Interestingly, the country that where most people read The Hundred Year Life was Japan. And uh, Prime Minister Abe, of course, now sadly no longer with us, asked me to sit on his council on the 100-year life with uh, some of the major, the, the big, min the major ministers in Japan, his ministers and some entrepreneurs and others. And we spent a, a year together uh, talking about what could government do to support the fact that we are in a society where people are living longer. And that went, interestingly enough, right the way back to supporting childcare so that women could work, which is a real challenge in Japan. Childcare isn't really easily available. So that women could work and actually start a career and and all of those other things. So I think I think that the question of these long, long careers mm -hmm. is a place where government could play a role. The second thing obviously is skills and education. And you know, I'm not the first person that said our education isn't fit for purpose. I mean some some people who know a great deal more than I have have talked about that, but I entirely agree with their point. And we should really be setting kids up to be lifelong learners. Uh, again, when I look at my own children, the times when they really learnt was when they did astonishing things, you know, when they worked as volunteers in, in places or all sorts of things which gave them a new idea about what the world was and, and how they, they could be part of the world. So I think there is a whole agenda that, that that has to play out with regard to how do you encourage people to want to be lifelong learners and want to get ChatGPT every day. The person who's playing around with ChatGPT every day is a lifelong learner. You can be bet they'll be doing other things as well. So that's the sort of thing that government needs to encourage. Yeah, and I think uh, something else we can start to see too emerge is the, the apprenticeship to different pathways as well to work, considering that some of this work is going to become, the, the bar is going to be raised because of technology and so on. So therefore, the pathways to work, I guess, from a societal point of view, is a very interesting area too. And you know, the whole traditional, you know, college and third le the level has been, yeah, fine, you know, as one route, but actually revisiting what a 21st century apprenticeship looks like, where you can actually, somebody can take a longer term view and gradually emerge into a role or a profession from an early base in a more organized way. And you, it's good to see the whole apprenticeship concept, which goes back hundreds of years, of course. I think seven years was the original apprenticeship, you know, going back if you were working in a as a bookbinder or as a printer, you know, you went in. And uh, so so taking a modern look at that seems to be another interesting route that could be re reframed. 
really great. I look, you, you've probably answered this, but I suppose just uh, to bring it, we've we've jumped around from organizational to societal, and you've mentioned the individual. Just just in case there's anything else that you'd like to add to that, you've you know we like to finish with some final thoughts on the individual and uh, level of all this, and, and in terms of people's future fitness, you know, yeah. from a yeah. work perspective. And you referred to lifelong learning, of course. Um, but is there any other comments or or pieces of advice you would give to us all, you know, at the individual level in terms of our future fitness and as we navigate the changes ahead? Well, interestingly, Kevin, I've spent the last two years reviewing my own life, rereading my work, thinking about my own memories in, in preparation for writing a book about how do you live a, you know, a good working life. And one thing that's very striking to me, Kevin, is how important cooperation is. You know, when I, so many of my memories, in fact, I'm writing them at the moment, are about working with people, you know, working with Andrew Scott when I wrote The 100 Year Live. Um, I've got this crazy story, which I've told before, about how I bumped into somebody in, in a house in the road near my house in, in near Barcelona who was a chocolate maker, and he made the most amazing box of chocolates that each of them was... Um, tasted of an aspect of hotspots because do you remember I wrote two books, Hotspots and Glow, about cooperation? I went back to those books. I'm reading them now, and I thought, you know, we've sort of begun to forget about that. We're forgetting about cooperation, um, particularly I think when everyone's working from home. We've just forgot about the joy of being with each other, the joy of friendships. So I think that would be my final piece, really, is to say, look, you know, what it means to be human is to be with each other. We are enormously collaborative societal animals and creatures, and we are happiest when we're with others. So, you know, either we're with others at work because they're our friends or they're, we're with others because, you know, we're cooperating with them, we're asking an, an igniting question, as I, as I called it, and the one for 100-year life was, what happens when everyone lives to 100? So, for me, my final, the thing I'm now writing about is, I'm going back full circle to the to uh, hot spots and glow, and saying, let's not forget about cooperation. Cooperation and and being to, and being together. It's interesting yeah. too. Someone, you know, referenced we were talking about resilience the other day, and you know, resilience is actually a team sport. Of course, there are things that we can do individually to build our resilience and our mental and physical health, and so on, and our readiness for disruption and so on. But but actually, resilience is also a very collective. Thing. We're in this together, you know, kids going through an exam or whatever. It's the collective uh, nature of things that help and, and helping each other out that gets them through ultimately. And we did our, our studies too on, on personal agility and the actual competencies. It was some, of the, some things were not surprising, like, you know, changeability and readiness for change and, and resilience and so on and learning mindset and so on. Not, not surprising, but actually what came out from from so much of the case studies of people who are thriving in in the new world of work were, was the the very thing you're talking about that collaborative nature that orientation to team and to share knowledge yeah. um and to learn together and so on and also relationship in terms of impact and influence and networking you know but it was surprising when you think about something individual like personal agility, that actually a fair a, a fair number, almost half of the competencies were actually to do with the collective as opposed to the individual. Yeah. So so thank you for that, Linda. That's really interesting. And I suppose to close, really just we covered such vast areas, and as you say, your three areas of 
technology and demographic, societal, and so on, and generative AI. But I know this is probably going to be the final paragraph of your book, but uh, on your reflections. But what do you find hopeful about the world of work going forward? Where do you think, you know, what kind of message would you give to people in terms of navigating this next stage? What do you, as a as an observer of the long trends, yeah. where do you? What's your what's your last thoughts on this? Well, you know, my last thoughts are that in the balance between the employee and the employer, mm. it feels like a much more balanced process now. You know, when I look at my own life, I didn't take maternity leave because it wasn't offered when I had my kids. I never took a sabbatical. Um, I never, I mean, obviously I work flexibly because that's the nature of being an academic, but actually all of those things are now available. And I just think it makes life better really. So I do think, and I think this, big push for freelance work is going to give people more autonomy, more independence. But the only way you'll make that autonomy and independence work as an individual is to have lifelong learning and what I call in my new book, Mastery. In fact, I've used the word mastery a number mm. of times in my work. So so I, I, do, I do feel very positive. I'm just reflecting on the shift, that book I wrote back in 2010, where I tried to predict 2025. Um, and I said, look, there's a dark side of the default future, which is about fragmentation, isolation and exclusion. I got that completely right. But there was a bright side, which I called co-creation, social engagement and micro entrepreneurship, the crafting creative lives. That's the piece we've got to focus on. Yeah, really interesting. And I, that, that sort of thread. And it's, it's interesting, too, when you think about COVID and the, the emotional reaction people had to their work and working life for the future and the way they wanted to hang on to some of the freedom. Wasn't it ironic that in the greatest sort of constraint of our freedom through a global pandemic, that actually people experienced a sense of freedom in terms of their work? And, and uh, not all jobs, of course, as we know, but those who had access to being able to work outside. But But the underlying theme for me wasn't about work or so on it was about it was about that sense of control and autonomy in your own life yeah. full stop so that's yeah. a really interesting place to to perhaps finish up and is that that's maybe the direction of travel that we're on if if people want to avail of that whether they're in employment or whether they are in the freelance world yeah control and autonomy fantastic linda it just goes for us to thank you for joining us today it's been a pleasure and the very best of luck. It sounds like you've got a number of projects you're not stopping anytime soon. Uh, we look forward to keeping in touch with all your work. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kevin. And what, what a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Changing World of Work podcast. Join us next time as we speak to experts about the trends, innovations and developments affecting workers and our workplaces.